Well, good evening and a very, very warm welcome to each and every one of you to St. Paul's. As we continue our Autumn Forum series, this year exploring how to change the world, and tonight focusing on peace. My name is Mark Oakley, and it's my privilege to be chairing the series, and of course to welcome and introduce our speakers to you, which I will do in just a moment. For those of you who haven't been to one of our events before, let me just quickly explain how it works. In a moment, uh, Stanley Howes and Brother Sam will speak about the meaning of peace in our world, our communities, our lives. And if you have a question, please, at any stage, write it out on the back of your leaflet and hold it up to be collected. You can do that at any point through the evening up until around 7.30 and we'll collect the questions from you through the evening. Just please make sure that the question is brief and that it's legible. And though some still think that I'm catching up with Strictly Come Dancing uh, on this screen here, actually your questions magically appear before me and then I'm able to put those questions to the speakers. We'll end promptly at 8 o'clock and books from the speakers in the series will be sale here under the dome and Stanley Howes has kindly agreed to sign copies of his books. There'll also be a chance to donate as you leave to uh, Sam's Hillfield Peace and Environment Programme, enabling the friary he leads to model living peacefully and sustainably on the earth in such a way that inspires thousands of visitors by a different way of being. But now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers Stanley Howis is Professor of Theological Ethics at Duke Divinity School in North Carolina. He's undoubtedly one of the most influential contemporary theologians, and Rowan Williams has called him one of the greatest Christian minds of our time. He has challenged our views about, amongst other things, Christ, the cross, the church, ethics, peace, war, politics, and death, causing a magnificent amount of upset along the way. He appears to write a brilliant book every few months, and they include, of course, the foundational work, The Peaceable Kingdom, a primer in Christian ethics, and more recently, Living Gently in a Violent World, also his book of sermons appropriately titled Without Apology, and due out next month, Approaching the End, Eschatological Reflections on Church, Politics, and Life. And in case you think his entire life is spent in the library, I think he may be the only person ever to have spoken at St. Paul's Cathedral who has also appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show. <laughs> For me, Stanley is a thinker who has put the odd back into God. A man who prefers to be hurt by the truth than comforted by a lie. Who challenges any Christianity that seeks to be a chaplaincy to the status quo. And who, 
as you may find a bit later yourselves, often is less interested in answering the questions that are typically posed by society as instead seeking to reframe those questions in and as a response to the Christian gospel. I read Stanley Howers with excited discomfort because he writes as faith should, dispelling illusions but without becoming disillusioned. And it's a great, great honour for me to be able to welcome him on your behalf to St Paul's tonight. Brother Sam is a Franciscan friar and brother in charge of Hillfield Friary in Dorset, the home of Anglican Franciscans for over a hundred years. He's lived and worked as a friar in Merseyside, Cambridge, the Solomon Islands, Zimbabwe, and has influenced for great good many who have come into contact with him, far more than his natural modesty will ever allow. He's been instrumental in reshaping the community at Hillfield to embrace sustainability, environmentally and spiritually, and it now includes women, men, children, chickens, cows and Franciscans, all living in a sort of Noah's Ark of holy togetherness. Pigs are on their way. It's also the home of the Hillfield Peace and Environment Programme in which the community works together to explore and model ways of living wisely and gently on the land. The Friary has hundreds of visitors a year, drawing them as a place of refreshment and inspiration to those of us who wonder what peace might begin to look like. It's a great privilege to welcome Brother Sam here this evening. Would you please welcome both our speakers? Thank you for that lovely introduction. It's lovely to be back at St. Paul's. I was here, I think, two years ago on a program on death and dying, and at that time I was, um, I had as the partner in the dialogue Sister Frances of Oxford, who deals with. Um, um, palliative care for our dying children and of course I'm a theologian which means for someone to be on a panel with Sister Frances uh, is only a judgment of your own life. I feel the same now they me, partnered me with uh, a brother Sam <laughs> <laughs> who uh, who lives what I think in a way uh, uh, that is only an embarrassment, but it's wonderful to be here with him. To be human is to be in conflict, to offend and to be offended. To be human in light of the gospel is to face conflict in redemptive dialogue. When we do that, it is God who does it. When we do that, we demonstrate that to process conflict is not merely a palliative strategy for tolerable survival or psychic hygiene, but a mode of truth-finding and community building. That is true in the gospel. It is also true matandus matandis, 
in the world. Pacifists are often thought to be hopeless idealists. Of course, everyone thinks peace is preferable to violence. But we live in a world of violence, which means most people think it is impossible to disavow the use of force. Wars and rumors of war have captured our imaginations. We cannot imagine a world without war. If Christians disavow the limited use of violence to sustain the hard-won order that is as close to justice as we can get, then it is said they must withdraw from the world. Pacifists, at least absolute pacifists, according to Reinhold Niebuhr, are useful because they remind those who use violence responsibly that they often have to do terrible things, but the price pacifists must pay for assuming such a position is to acknowledge that they are politically irresponsible. Yet I began with this quote from John Howard Yoder, to be human is to be in conflict, to offend and to be offended. That quote doesn't sound like someone who is withdrawing from the world. Yoder begins with that observation that to be human is to be in conflict, to offend and to be offended. That doesn't sound like a starry-eyed idealist who thinks we're basically good people who for some reason occasionally find ourselves in conflict with one another. Rather, Yoder seems to think that conflict is built into our humanity. In particular, we offend and are offended, often cherishing our enemies and waiting to pay them back for what we think they have done to us. Yoder's realism about our lives together is at the heart of that Anabaptist movement called Mennonites, shaped as it was by Matthew 18, 15 through 22. There Jesus tells us, if a brother or sister sins against you, you must confront them by what you think they have done. You are first to go alone hoping that the one who has, who, who you think has sinned against you will confess their sin and you can be reconciled. Jesus does not say you might consider confronting your brother or sister if you think they have wronged you. Rather, Jesus says you must confront them. Why must you confront them? Because a community of peace cannot afford to let wrongs fester because the result is uncontrolled rage. I confess I do not particularly like what Jesus tells us we must do, that is, confront the one that has, we think has wronged us. If I must confront the one who I think has wronged me, I might discover through that process I'd in fact not been wronged. What a terrible result. I prefer to cherish what I take to be wrongs done to me. I do so because I suspect my sense of who I am is more determined by what I am against rather than what I am for. I often pray that God can have my loves, but please do not take my hates from me. If you take my hates, how will I know who I am? Do I really want to live in the hope of being reconciled with those I think have wronged me? Yoder, however, claims that what it means to be human in the light of the gospel is to face conflict in redemptive dialogue. 
what could that mean? I think it means the process that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18. For there we're told if our brother or sister does not acknowledge the wrongs, then we are to take two or three witnesses so that every word spoken can be confirmed. If the brother or sister still does not listen, they are to be confronted by the whole church. Finally, if the one who has sinned refuses to repent, we are, they are to be to us like a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, they are to be excommunicated. Excommunication, however, is it is important to remember, is not someone being thrown out, but rather a declaration that they have already excluded themselves, and excommunication is a call for repentance to return. Yoder claims that such a process is not just a clever palliative strategy for survival, but it is a mode of truth-finding and community-building. He even makes the astounding claim that it is the process that God is in. God is in the process because the process is about the discovery of truth. For it is only on the basis of truth that we can live at peace with one another. Violence rides on the back of the lie because violence cannot help but be the result of our desperate attempt to hide from ourselves and others the lies that have become reality through our loves. That is why some of the most intense forms of violence are to be found in those extraordinary circumstances called marriage. For often what we declare to one another is based on the refusal to challenge the fantasies we entertain about ourselves that we have learned to call love. Yoder assumes therefore that the church, if it is to be the manifestation of God's peace, will be a highly contentious institution. It will be said of Christians that they must love one another for how else are we to understand their willingness to engage in one, one another in such controversy and argument? They may even seem to love one another enough they're willing to tell one another the truth. For what could be more significant than to have friends that are willing to tell one another the truth? And what is the truth? That God sent his only son that we might see God's peace and we killed him. Yoder's account of Christian nonviolence is therefore Christological all the way down. We are to live in the light of the crucifixion. That is, we can now live nonviolently because God refused to use violence to overwhelm our violence. Rather, in the cross, Jesus defeated the powers that would tempt us to use violence to kill in the name of the good of humanity. In the book of Revelation, we're told that the lamb that was slain is worthy to receive power. That means Christ's crucifixion is not an inscrutable paradox, but a meaningful affirmation that the cross and not the sword, suffering and not brute power, will determine the meaning of history. Therefore, the key to the obedience of God's people is not effectiveness, but patience. The triumph of the right is assured not by the might that comes to the aid of the right, 
which is the, peren which is the perennial justification of violence. But rather, the triumph of the right is sure, not because of any calculation of causes and effects, nor because of the inherent strength of the good guys, but because of the power of the resurrection. As Yoder puts it, the relationship between the obedience of God's people and the triumph of God's cause is not a relationship of cause and effect, but of cross and resurrection. In War and the American Difference, a book I recently wrote, I began by observing that it is, it is a modest book with an immodest proposal. That is, to convince Christians that war has been abolished. The grammar of that sentence is my attempt to make concrete Yoder's claim that the cross and resurrection, not cause and effect, are the categories that make sense of the Christian commitment to nonviolent truth-telling. I take our first task as Christians is not to work for the elimination of war, though of course that would be a good thing, but rather our first task is to live lives that witness to the fact that in the cross of Christ, war, in fact, has been abolished. The world has already been saved from war. The question is now how can and should Christians live in a world of war as a people who believe war has been abolished. Enda McDonough, a Roman Catholic moral theologian who taught many years at St. Patrick's Maynooth, and I have actually drafted an appeal to abolish war. We note that many theologians, ethicists, and concerned people will think we've gone around the bend because it's simply naive to call for the abolition of war. But we call attention to John Paul II's call in Centesius Annus for war never again. John Paul II, we believe, was echoing Tuchelian's succinct summary of early church teaching, that is, the Lord in disarming Peter henceforth disarms every soldier. We claim, therefore, it is loyalty to the examples and teachings of Jesus Christ, which first and foremost summons Christians to renounce war and to seek the wider religious and human communities to develop alternatives in protecting the innocent, restraining aggressors, and overcoming injustice. We are well aware that the call may seem utopian to some, but what could be more naive than the presumptions that wars can be fought for peace? We know, of course, wars will continue to be fought. We just want Christians to know how to say no. My way of putting the matter is that Christians are called to be nonviolent, not because we think nonviolence is a strategy to rid the world of war, but in a world of war, as faithful followers of Christ, we cannot imagine being anything other than nonviolent. We recognize, moreover, that such a commitment to nonviolence may well make the world more violent because the world does not want exposed the violence that is called order. We are ready to join hands with just war brothers and sisters in our call for the abolition of war because we believe if just war was taken seriously, we would at least be on the way to a more peaceful world. 
The problem is it's too late after a war has begun to ask if it meets just war criteria. What would a just war foreign policy look like for the United States? What would a just war Pentagon look like? What would a just war people look like? That is, a people who are willing to take more losses on the battlefield rather than commit one murder. For me, the crucial question that must be asked is, if a war is not just, what is it? For example, World War I and World War II were arguably not just wars. How would our attitude toward war in general be if we spoke instead of World Slaughter I and World Slaughter II? I suspect that we continue to have war because we think we have to honor those who have died in past wars by showing we are willing to sacrifice the youth of the present age to show that we are worthy to receive the sacrifices of the youth in the past. The most telling sacrifice, moreover, is the sacrifice of the normal unwillingness to kill. Which brings me back to the quote from Yoder, and in particular the last sentence in the quote. He observes that the conflict necessary for truth-finding and community-building that makes peace possible is not only true of the gospel, but is also true in the world. Though often accused of sectarian withdrawal, Pacifists argue that the way of peace is not restricted to Christians, but is a possibility for any community because the God Christians worship is obviously not the possession of Christians. Accordingly, Yoder thinks that the kind of truth-seeking process that should be characteristic of the church is not limited to the church. The church, of course, is not a bad place to start. It is often assumed that violence is more, a more pervasive reality than peace. I suspect that presumption often assumes we know what peace looks like, but I'm not at all sure that is the case. What surely is the case is violence captivates us in a manner that peace, we think, does not. If you do not believe that, ask yourself, when was the last time you went to see a movie about peace? Violence and war just seem so exciting. At least they seem so exciting in the movies. Peace just sounds so boring. But if peace entails the kind of reconciling confrontation I'm suggesting that must be true of a people who fear not the truth, then it is hard to imagine any process less boring. Rather, peace so understood is the most demanding of disciplines, requiring, as it does, conflicts necessary for the discernment of what is true and good. Nothing I've said, or at least I hope that nothing I've said, should be heard as a counsel of despair. Rather, what I hope my remarks may suggest is confidence that Christian nonviolence is not some ideal that is relegated to the not achievable future. Rather, Christians are called to live nonviolently because that is God's way of triumphantly redeeming the world. 
I think that's not bad news, but the best news we so desperately need. So the question is not how, if we are committed to Christian nonviolence, we can work to change the world in the hope of reducing conflict. Rather, the question is, given that the world has been changed in the cross and resurrection of Christ, how we can be adequate witnesses to that fact. A good place to start is the decision that none of us will put ourselves in situations where we will be tempted to kill someone. Not killing another person is not perhaps the most profound sense of peace, but Again, just as you have to start with the church, you have to start somewhere. After all, if you cannot kill your enemy, and there, are, and there are ways to kill which are short of death, you're going to have to engage in politics. The very fact that we can't kill one another means we have to politically be engaged in a way that discovers the good we have in common, a good called God. It is my contention that our lives are constituted by forms of peace we do not notice because we're not trained to notice them. Visit one of Jean Vanier's large homes and there you will see what peace looks like. There you will see how interesting peace is. There you will see the habits necessary to sustain a community of peace. If, as Augustine argued, the good is more determinative reality than evil, then I think it true that peace is a more determinative reality than violence. Violence, interestingly enough, is parasitic on peace. I am suggesting our task is to call attention to God's gift of peace so that we might be witnesses to the reality that we were, not re we were not created to kill one another. We were created to be at peace with one another. Thank you very much. St. Francis of Assisi is uh, somewhat in the news these days. There's a pope in Rome who has taken the name of Francis and who through his simplicity and his direct speaking, his humility, uh, seems to be turning the Roman Catholic Church upside down. Then Francis as the patron saint of ecology offers us insight into living wisely within our natural environment. And then there's Francis and peace. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Though I'm sorry to inform you that he didn't write that prayer. However, the fact that it was probably written during World War I by an unknown Belgian Roman Catholic priest, consciously in the spirit of Francis, makes it a true expression of Francis, who through his discipleship of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, 
lived and learnt to live peaceably and who became a passionate peacemaker. Francis told his brothers that they, as they went around preaching and as Jesus had told his disciples, they should always begin by saying, the Lord give you peace. And when his brothers complained that no one understood what they meant, they meant when they gave the greeting, he told them to give it anyway because it was a gift. It, the peace was a gift from the Lord which he had received. It's recorded that wherever Francis went, he sought to bring those who were in conflict to a peaceful reconciliation, sometimes with remarkable success. Perhaps the most significant example of this is, was his journey to Egypt, joining the armies of the Fourth Crusade, where he crossed the enemy lines to speak personally and humbly with the Sultan. Not for a gentle bit of interfaith dialogue, but to try to persuade him to make peace. And he actually had more success with the Sultan than with the leaders of the Christian armies, who, dismissive of these efforts by Francis, pursued the crusade to its, for the Christians, disastrous end. So Francis, although he lived in a different age and a, in a very different culture to ours, uh, may have something to show us about living peaceably and about making peace today. And it's this that I want to share with you over the next uh, few minutes. And I'd hasten to say that, of course, the, the followers of Francis uh, don't have a corner on the peace business. Um, they are not, we are not perfect practitioners of peace. There were brothers fighting each other at the annual, annual chapter meeting of brothers, um, bare knuckles the lot, within the lifetime of Francis. I hope we've moved on a little bit from those days. Um, <laughs> uh, but the fact remains that uh, life in a religious order is not always the peaceable, peaceful idyll that is often portrayed. In fact, sometimes I feel that community life would be fine if it wasn't for the other brothers and sisters. <laughs> a member of our Franciscan community at Hillfield uh, spent three months a couple of years ago living in a Palestinian village on the West Bank. And there he learnt that the Syrian Orthodox Christians, um, those who use the Aramaic language which Jesus himself spoke, have the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, as blessed are those who sow the seeds of peace. Blessed are those who sow the seeds of peace. And it seems to me that this alternative version expresses something of what we might, what might be called a Franciscan approach to, to peacemaking. First of all, it, it, it indicates that, that peace has 
small beginnings. It's, it's like a seed sown in soil, hidden in the ground, and left for a time to germinate and grow. It needs to put down roots and may take years to bear fruit. It requires patience and perseverance. Desmond Tutu, um, the former Archbishop of Cape Town and uh, a great man of peace, writes, it writes in his autobiography that what set him out on the path of peace between races in South Africa was the fact that in the township parish where he was brought up, Father Tre Trevor Huddleston, the parish priest, always raised his hat to Desmond's mother when they met in the street. That small act of courtesy and respect, so unusual between black and white, even in the church at the time, stirred him to imagine a peaceful future beyond apartheid. Small actions, small gestures can stretch our imaginations, can shape our characters and our culture towards peace. And equally, small acts of disrespect, harsh words, nurtured fears, hardened attitudes, petty resentments, things left unsaid, can become the seeds of violence and war. Christopher Clarke's recent book on how Europe went to war in 1914, entitled Sleepwalkers, describes how countless comparatively minor events Words of violence, acts of coercion, unaddressed hurts, breakdowns of communication around Europe in the decades preceding the First World War led to the catastrophe from which we are still experiencing the shockwaves 100, nearly 100 years later. Europe sleptwalked into war by not noticing or paying attention to the seeds of war being sown. Francis became a disciple of Christ's peace because he attended to small, seemingly mundane things. A cluster of grapes for a sick brother, a gentle, kind word for one who felt humiliated seeking forgiveness for wrongs recognized, the willingness to step aside and to wait, the embrace of a leper, an attitude of respect, but also truth towards the hated and demonized Muslim. These were the seeds that shaped him and the culture that grew up around him. And if someone asks, as many do, well, what difference do such small gestures, um, acts of restraint or of generosity or of sacrifice or of truth-telling make in a world of violence, then I would say that the seeds of peace are important 
not principally because of the difference they make, but because they are true and they fit the pattern of Jesus Christ. Some seeds will surely fail to put down roots, but as Jesus says, others will bear fruit 40-fold and 60-fold and even 100-fold. So blessed are those who sow the seeds of peace. But there's another reason why this version expresses Francis's way of being an instrument of peace. It reminds us that a peaceful relationship with our human being, our fellow human beings, is integral to and dependent upon a peaceful relationship with the rest of creation. The great American agronomist and essayist Wendell Berry says that our life as human beings and the future of our civilization rests upon our understanding of and care for the top 10 inches of soil which lie over the face of this planet. And if we lose an awareness of that relationship between ourselves and the soil, then human society is threatened, even doomed. Almost without exception, the wars and minor conflicts which are taking place around the world today are around issues about land and its resources, oil, gas, minerals, precious metals, water, food. The fact is that all of us are grabbing as much as we can of these things with greater or lesser degrees of violence. And that we, we will not know peace between ourselves, between ourselves and other human beings, until we begin to live more peaceably with the rest of creation. Genocide and ecocide are closely intertwined. Francis of Assisi was someone who didn't just love furry animals. He was a lover of God's creation, overwhelmed by its giftedness and its abundance, which reflected the generous goodness and infinite creativity of God. Aware that every creature, no matter how small or insignificant, has an intrinsic value, not just a utilitarian value. It has an intrinsic value and therefore a right to be because it comes from God. There's a story of Francis telling the gardener in one of the friaries that he must leave a place for the weeds because they have a right to be there. Well, there is a certain environmental wisdom in that, actually. Francis was aware too that because every creature, both animate and inanimate, comes from the one source, we are therefore all part of the one of the same family. We are all brothers and sisters. Brother sun, sister moon, brother fire, sister water, and so on. We belong together and therefore we owe to every creature respect, honor, and tender care. 
And such, says Francis, is the way to peace. At Hillfield Frari, we are seeking to live out some of this Franciscan vision. Seeking peace between ourselves in a rather diverse community of Franciscan brothers, as Mark was saying, um, young volunteers, uh, families, young children, uh, and those who are with us in supported living, people on the margins but also trying to live peaceably in relation to our 19 acres of Dorset countryside, woodlands and meadows. We recognize that how we pray daily in chapel relates to the bread that we bake and break and share. And how we receive our guests relates to the way we treat and eat our livestock. We don't actually eat the guests. Um, and how we enjoy and delight in the orchids that grow in our fields in June. It's only a small place uh, tucked away in the fold, a fold of the Dorset Downs. But maybe there some seeds of peace are being sown. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Sam, and thank you, Stanley. And now over to the audience, please. Um, if you haven't already, write down your questions, hold them up, and they'll be collected and taken, and then will appear in front of me here. And some have started to come through, <coughs> and so let's, let's get going. Um, here we are, sitting in a cathedral, and one of the most famous pictures of this cathedral, of course, is the dome surrounded by the flames and smoke uh, of the Blitz. And uh, the first question that came in, uh, how can you say that both the First and Second World Wars were not just, particularly the Second World War, resisting the spread of Nazism? Stanley. Um, you can't fight a just war for unconditional surrender. Um, the whole point of just war is to give war a political end through which the enemy knows the conditions of surrender. Um, also, you can't bomb German cities as uh, uh, the British did um, indiscriminately and call it just. You cannot drop uh, uh, the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and call it just. That was murder. That was murder. So, it is, though I quite well understand that World War II is often seen, particularly in the States, as, quote, the good war. Uh, I think um, a hard look at it, and you would see that uh, there are real questions about 
the internal conflict within the war, uh, the, the internal uh, processes of how the war was um, uh, was uh, prosecuted uh, that do not meet uh, uh, the just war criteria of discrimination or proportionality. So, so can a government ethically use its armed forces to resist attacks on its people? Well, that would be um, um, what... Uh, it, it is a debate within just war theory of whether a war has to be defensive uh, to be just. Um, it is... For example, uh, in the Israeli Six-Day War, where you um, bombed on the ground Egypt's air force, even though Egypt had not yet declared war, um, is seen as, um, by some just war theorists, as just because the very existence of Egyptian Air Force uh, stationed in air bases close to Israel was in fact um, already an act of war. Um, I, I think that those are very uh, doubtful um, ways of trying to understand how it is that um, you can have an offensive war that um, is just, but I mention it in fairness of how just war people have tried to think about that. Um, it is um, how you... Let me just... One of the crucial questions, I think, is how a just war perspective can be compatible with a neo-realist understanding of international affairs. Because um, a neo-realist understanding of international affairs assumes you are always at war. It's just not enacted uh, at that time. And um, I mean, why, why should the United States think it has the right to tell Syria that it can't have chemical weapons when we do? Um, well, because everyone knows that the United States allegedly is a country of humanity and we wouldn't use it. We, you know, uh, we did in World War I. Um, so I think I'll, I oftentimes say to my just war friends, um, have you ever met a war yet you haven't liked? Um, you know, show me where people are trained through just war reflection to know how to say no. Um, of, of course, uh, Brother Samuel and I both um, justified our account of nonviolence Christologically. And then the question becomes, on what possible grounds do you justify just war Christologically? And um, there have been some attempts at that. I don't think they've worked. Sam, Second World War 
just. I think the, uh, the, the, the problem with labeling a war just or trying to simply come at, it, come at it simply through the just war the just war theory is that it uh, it doesn't take account of how violence always corrupts it will always corrupt us and i take it as an example and this is not from the second world war but from the recent war in iraq where there was shock and horror at the fact that some British soldiers, our boys, um, uh, committed atrocities against some Iraqi um, prisoners, abusing them and, uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, the, they were held up as um, terrible examples and, and so on. But we were shocked. But, but why? It, it's, if you get involved in that, in the sort of war that was taking place then, or in any war, you're going in the, in, in, in the sort of violence, it, it will corrupt you, it will overtake you. And to resist it is very hard indeed. So I'm very cautious about wanting to label wars um, simply, straightforwardly, just. So another question has come in as, a, I think, a follow-up then. Uh, what is the ethical way to deal with or confront violence? I mean, can we stick with you, Sam, for a moment with that? What is the way to... What is the ethical way, then, to deal with or confront violence? Well, I think certainly to try all possible ways of... Um, alternative ways to violence. Um, to seek and to be prepared to make the sacrifices that that, that will that will involve. Um, I mean, I'm just following the recent decision of the House of Commons about rejecting the way of uh, or being unwilling to uh, agree to the um, violent action or involvement in in Syria. Um, seems to me that. Those people, the, the, the members of parliament, were willing to look at something alternative and to, uh, to resist as far as possible um, any involvement in the war. Um, hold back, wait, patience, dialogue. But people could be paying the cost while that's happening? Uh, yes, it, it, people will be paying the cost. Um, and I think as Christians, at any rate, we've got to say we, we, we are prepared to, to pay the cost. Hmm. Can I ask, I mean, uh, you've been very clear in your writings how um, a pacifist is not passive <laughs> and that peacemaking is a virtue. Uh, and something active. What is the ethical way to deal with or confront violence? Yeah, I hate the language of pacifism because it's just so passive. <laughs> and um, and I and I hate the language of nonviolence because it says it's a ne it, it's a negative qualifying violence. So you've got to have violence to know um, um, the. 
as Brother Samuel just suggested, the way you, you have to confront violence, first and foremost, is by willingness to die. Uh, there's, um, and that means people committed to nonviolence have to face the possibility that the innocent will have to suffer for their convictions. That is a dreadful truth. That the innocent, I mean, the typical justification for violence is what about the grandmother walking across the street with 47 orphans and a guy comes out with a submachine gun? Uh, what are you going to do? Um, um, so the what if questions always assume that there is no alternative but to try to kill the guy with a submachine gun. Uh, therefore, violence is simply necessary. What, as Brother um, uh, Samuel suggested, what you have to do is to try to think beforehand of what alternatives you may have to create a world in which uh, someone doesn't have a submachine gun uh, to be able to do that kind of thing. So you have so you have to think away, think ahead. But there is no account of nonviolence that won't have the possibility that the innocent will have to suffer because of your unwillingness to kill. I mean, if you think, I mean, there would have, if rather than drop the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, on just war grounds, it would have been better for more uh, American uh, soldiers to die on the beaches of Japan and more Japanese soldiers die trying to kill them on the beaches of Japan than were killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That would have been, on just war grounds, see, uh, that would have been preferable to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So just war people have the same burden that we do as people committed to peace. That is, they may also have to watch innocents suffer for their convictions. The, um, uh, what I think we just, uh, what we don't know how to do is imagine alternatives because we assume violence is simply a given that we have to reach for and therefore our imaginations are not forced into alternatives that um, uh, make possible a less violent world. I think the police function of the state um, um, uh, is an alternative, is, can be understood as a nonviolent alternative because the police are war you have the policeman and the judge as the one person. Police don't want to kill, they only want to prevent violence. And that, and so they don't judge it in that way. And their whole, I mean, in the states, the name of police officer is they are a peace officer. 
Now, what would it mean to be the kind of society that Christians could be called to the police function in a way that they don't have to carry guns? Now, that, that's the kind of imaginative alternatives that I think we Christians want to force ourselves to have to think. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to turn to another area of something that you were speaking about, Sam. Two questions here. Is environmentalism a part of peace? And then somebody's written, but isn't nature terribly violent? Let's me, let me answer the, the second part first. Um, nature read in tooth and claw. Um, certainly, uh, if the fox gets into my chickens, it will cause havoc among them. It will kill the whole lot of them without even wanting to take one of them away. Uh, that's because I keep chickens in a natural setting all together and they're so bred that they won't f be able to fly up into a tree when a fox appears um, and therefore need a certain amount of protection against the fox. But actually that's not, that's not the only um, image of, of nature. Um, nature works as much by cooperation. Um, cooperation between species, um, relying upon each other, depending upon each other, the interrelationship of species, um, you can see it in your garden. Um, the, the, the birds eat the slugs. Um, the slugs uh, eat certain forms of insects and, uh, and, and make compost. We, they, the garden depends upon it, that sort of cooperation. So it's, uh, I don't think it's true to just say that nature is, is violent. There's certainly um, there's cost and sacrifice in nature and in our own lives, but whether that's inherently violent, I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, does peace involve environmentalism? Uh, peace, I certainly believe, involves in learning to live peaceably with and in the rest of creation with other creatures, and that if we don't learn to live peaceably and have what one might call an environmental mind, uh, we're not going to be very successful or find it easy to be peaceful with our fellow humans. I was very struck by the image of the earth that you uh, talked mm. about and I was thinking how the, the very word humus mm. is, is linked to our word humility. May I respond to, to mm. that? Environmental. Um, when, uh, when Brother Samuel said every creature has a right to be, I wrote down vegetarianism. And, um, um, uh, and also the problem of predation. I mean, predation's reality. It's very interesting that, um, I mean, I think these are fundamental eschatological issues. And um, that in the beginning, um, Lions ate straw. It's very clear um, uh, in uh, in Genesis. So predation was not intrinsic to the created order. 
as one of the problems is as soon as the created war order becomes nature, then nature says it is dumb and dull, and we we human beings have to make it conform to our will, and that's a, certainly a deep violence, and I think um, you get uh, the side effects of it pretty quickly. The um, uh, but we we believe that in Christ creation has been redeemed and we are in the time between the times when we as Christians can live in the reality of that redemption when it is still in revolt against what Christ has done. And um, that um, means that the first task you've got to do is not tell yourself um, silly fables about the world in which we find ourselves, but rather to live in hope that um, peace is a reality that can be enacted in our own lives. You're, you're, you're endorse it, even endorse it. Um, and, um, uh, and without exemplifications like that, we're lost. We're lost. I didn't hear you, by the way, say you had chickens when you were first talking. And I thought, boy, it takes a lot to like a chicken. But uh, there. I'm glad to know you do. It's said that God created them to make sheep look intelligent. Right. <laughs> what about the structural causes of some of the world's violence? Uh, Ask somebody. Patriarchy, consumerism and greed, serious inequality in wealth distribution. Some. Uh, sure. Um, and in, it, it, is, it is those... Um, structural issues that that we need to address, and in fact, you know, you, we won't. I mean, talking about what to do in about Syria, for instance. Um, in some ways, it's well. In one sense, it's both. Um, there's there's a little, and there's a lot we can do. It, it's too late. In one sense, to do much about Syria because uh, for the last 60 or so years the, the language of war and conflict has been spoken in relation and around that country and the country has been armed um, by um, different, different countries um, uh, but we have got to start with, we've got to start somewhere. We've got to start with small beginnings. We've got to start with addressing the way we live, our consumerist culture, the way we live in relation to the world around us, the way, the sort of language we speak um, on, on just on a human level, on an ordinary intimate level, the sort of language which we use of others with those with whom we disagree or we are fearful of. Um, so, unless we address the structural issues of um, dominance and, 
and, and patriarchy and of the environmental issues um, and of of the sort of our consumption which we which we have and which we're addicted to, uh, we won't be able to uh, speak or find the ways or the words and the the the, the ways of peace. I um uh, I think first of all. It's I oftentimes, when people say, what are we going to do about these kinds of issues, I think the most important question to begin with is, who is the we? Um, um, in the States, I, um, I often appeal to um, the old, I don't, the movie was out recently, it wasn't a very good movie, the relationship between the Lone Ranger and Tonto. And um, um, the Lone Ranger was a Texas Ranger who was brought back to life by uh, the last of um, member of uh, of a Native American tribe, and they went around the West doing good. And Lone Ranger uh, rode a white horse, had a white hat, silver shooter. And uh, but one time they were they were discovered that they were surrounded by um, 25,000 Sioux in the Dakotas. And the Lone Ranger looked at Tonto and said, this looks pretty tough, Tonto. What do you think we ought to do? And Tonto said, what do you mean we, white man? <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> it, um, uh, it makes a lot of difference who the we is in terms of how you're asking the question. Uh, if you accept um, the presumptions, uh, for example, of the modern nation-state system with, um, uh, with the arbitrary uh, account of borders that is so often uh, associated with that, then um, war is simply written in to how you're going to um, uh, understand, that's what I was saying about the relationship between neoliberal understandings of international relations and just war and how they, I don't think they're compatible. Um, um, interestingly enough, one of the ways to argue about how you qualify um, in the nation-state system that we currently experience is money. Um, is uh, Money is one of the most interesting ways of gaining peace if people are more ready to make money than to defend the country. Um, one, um, uh, um, uh, the Shield of Achilles is a book um, whose t author, I've suddenly blocked his name, which argues that uh, exactly uh, the market state that is now developing may, as a matter of fact, be less likely to go to war. It will still go to war, exactly because it's not in the interest of making money. Of course, the more money you make uh, along those lines, the more degradation you do to the environment. <laughs> so uh, there, there are uh, real side effects that are there. I myself, I think that uh, Brother Samuel and I both wanted to suggest that if you think you've got an answer at that level, you'll never be for peace. You've got to be much closer on the ground to the kind of 
work that is necessary, very conflictual work oftentimes, um, uh, if we are even to know what peace looks like. Okay, so we have Christian people sitting in a cathedral talking about peace. Um, maybe that's what we expect, but uh, some very hard questions coming in here about you know, when Christians are the problem, not part of the solution. So I'm going to give you three quickly and we'll put them together. Why are nations and peoples of different religions fighting one another, Christians, Muslims, Jews, etc., when they supposedly all believe in a God of peace? Do Old Testament narratives of violence undermine the efforts of Christians to promote peace? And is it surprising we're in conflict, both with each other and in ourselves, when the church so often teaches that we are, in essence, sinful and sinners? Modern psychology clearly shows that what we focus on or believe about ourselves, we manifest in reality. Right. Answers, please, on a postcard. Uh, Da, 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 da. Sam. Let, me, let, me, let me take the second <laughs> one first. Um, the, the Old Testament, um, God's, God's ordering the destruction of the Amalekites, I don't know what in the hell to do with. Um, um, I do think you can read, um, you can read, you've got to be very careful how you answer that question because it looks like oh, well, the Jews are a bloodthirsty group of people and God let them kill whoever they wanted to, but thank goodness that Jesus came along and made us nice. Mm. And, um, uh, and so you get, I mean, there, there's quickly an anti-Semitic narrative that can get going in that. I think that the, the Old Testament can be read as Israel's testimony to her discovery that kingship is a bad idea and that exactly because kingship is a bad idea how you learn to live in Babylon um, is a very peaceful thing that you must learn to do and in that sense I hope there is a deep continuity between um, uh, the promise of God in the calling of the people of Israel to be his promised people and in what has occurred in Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection. Um, the, um, the, I mean, it's interesting that people that want to use particular text in the, in the Old Testament to justify violence why don't they do it for polygamy? <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I mean, that's certainly there. Uh, so I, um, I, I think there's a kind of arbitrariness uh, to that uh, way. That the, the Christian complicity in um, uh, violence is part of our sinfulness that we must repent of and um, live in a way that makes us different uh, from that past. It is our past and there's no denying it. We must now, um, and it was a past that presumed 
that Christians needed to be in control of the societies in which they found themselves. That's over. That's over. We're now not in control. We can be free to be at peace with one another and with those who are not Christian. That's what a, what a great thing God has been doing that gives us this new opportunity. Mm. Sam, can we yeah. focus in on the, the idea of maybe the church stresses depravity more than dignity, sin more yes. than blessing, and, yeah. and what effect yeah. that might have as we translate? Mm. Certainly, I, I think it was... Um, John Austin Baker, Bishop of uh, Salisbury, who's, who wrote that uh, there is often um, enough conflict and violence in the average parish bazaar to fuel a nuclear war. <laughs> um, and certainly uh, some of the conflicts which we've seen, we see in the church and we see amongst Christians, some of the language which is used um, makes one deeply ashamed and despairing. And uh, a recognition that, that I myself can get caught up in that. Um, uh, nevertheless, I, I, I think overall is the church a witness to peace or to violence overall does it speak words of peace or words of violence is it a sign of Christ's peace or is it a sign of something else well there will be occasions when it when it is and it's clearly not true to its vocation to live in Christ um, that doesn't that, the church needs to repent as well now, uh, I'm going to try and get a couple more questions in, so I'm going to ask you to you know, uh, try and be as brief as possible, but obviously I want you to tell us the answers to these important questions because I'm very conscious it's an all-male panel tonight, so here's an important question. If women ruled the world, would there be less wars? The answer to that is Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> uh. I, I mean, um, you could say, well, you know, uh, when, uh, uh, she was, as one of the first women in that position, she had to be more male than any male. But uh, I don't know that um, necessarily um, women are going to be less bellicose than men. Um, um, you die, you, you give up sons and daughters for country. Um, I, um, um, the sacrificial system is uh, too overwhelming. My colleague Elizabeth has typed, by the way, no one who ever went to a girls' school thinks there'd be fewer wars if women ruled the world. <laughs> Sam? Living in, having lived in, um, in an all-male community um, for some considerable time, I'm, um, I think I'm blessed now to live in a community of, of, of men and women. And it does actually make a difference. It does make a difference in the way we do our business. It does affect our, 
It does affect our language. It affects our, our relationships. Um, so it's not so much as that, 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 that women should rule the world rather than men, because it's still the language of dominance. But I think the cooperation and partnership of women with men and men with women in every situation is um, helpful to living in peace. Um, let's just, as the evening draws towards its end, let's start thinking about practicalities um, here. And there's, a, there's an interesting question that's come in, um, asking you about, after a busy day, like today, how do you find peace of mind for a peaceful night? Stanley, do you have a peaceful mind? I have to read a prayer that is more substantive than I could ever write because if you try to force yourself to be at peace you'll never be at peace rather you have to be taken over by an activity that is more determinative than you are. And that and that is not a habit. I can say I practice with great frequency, but I know that's the truth. Yeah. I, I think um having a rhythm of um, a rhythm of a rhythm of prayer a rhythm of silence a rhythm of rest a rhythm which is part of your life and trying to in the midst of a very busy life um, holding true to that rhythm and letting it shape you is what will what will help you to see that actually your preoccupations are not the most important things in the world and that there is uh, um, there are other important uh, issues uh, around which allow you to let go of your let go of what's been preoccupying you I think I, th I think it's, we're so desperate to be in control <laughs> and um uh, how to ever let go of that and I mean I think there's a lot of there is a deep relationship between joy and peace mm -hmm. and when you're mm -hmm. and when you're taken over by joy uh, you begin to get a taste and I use the language of taste of peace and um, uh, that um, I, I think a prayer as a gift of joy. Uh, so, I, I, I'd add I also having some, um, some, some, some manual um, oh. craft or whatever. Working with your hands um, is a great balance to the sort of cerebral stuff which goes round and round and round and which preoccupies us. And actually, have some some kind of. Uh, 
uh, craft or work with your hands or um, I would say uh, baking a loaf of bread um, are really important sort of fundamental rather mundane things to do which uh, are a part of the way of peace. We, uh, I was raised a bricklayer and um, I, I think that that mm. certainly speaks to me and um, when at night um, I, this is a maybe a little off color but when um, uh, when you when you lay what's known as Haydite block they're eight by eight by sixteens and they weigh about 55 pounds a piece you lay 200 of them during the day we call them birth control block <laughs> because at night you were uh, nothing you could do, and um, uh, and there was a kind, but there's a satisfaction to it um, uh, that uh, comes from uh, the body um, responding to that kind of of good work, uh, um, so, and, and which I mean. And you, you, you also can have a feeling of completion. One of the problems of being a theologian, like after tonight, I'll go home and think, I can't believe I got that wrong. <laughs> so you're never finished. <laughs> you, never, you never feel like you got it right, because how could you ever get God right? And we were talking about James Allison before we came out here, who, of course, wrote a famous book called The Joy of Being Wrong. Right, right. right. Um, uh, important. Yes, great book. Last uh, question. I do apologize to those of you who haven't had your questions. Although so many have come through tonight, which, of course, is a sign of, of, of what we've been listening to. But um, I'm conscious that, that, that Gandhi once said that if we're to teach real peace in this world, if we're going to have a war on war, as it were, we're going to have to begin with the children. And I'm conscious also that violence is being made so attractive in our films, for instance, at computer games, uh, and so on. And there are a few questions that have come through about how do we attract our children to the way of peace? Mm -hmm. um, somebody has said universal peace is sadly an unrealistic prospect any time in the near or long term future as a parent am I failing my responsibility to my children if I give them false hope how, mm. how do we if, in the, taking Gandhi's words how do we begin now with the children I'll just make a comment on that that I think it was um, it was John, John Lennon was asked when in the 1970s, the early 70s, when he was with Yoko Ono and making love, not war, and doing it rather publicly in, uh, in bed. Um, and uh, he was asked, what good would that do to say, make love, not war, to Hitler in 1939? And he said, well, um, no good at all. But supposing those words had been said to him, had been said to him from the time he was a baby, so I think we've got to find ways of introducing and giving our children um, the experience of peace, of peaceful relationships, of peaceful relationships, not just in, within the family, but peaceful relationships in the local community in, and I would say with, with creation as well. And that's a really important part of it. And uh, the, the, 
it's a great joy to have children at the Ferrari who are growing up with a great sense of wonder and creativity and ingenuity in play and in um, in their relationship with the, the land around, which I think is, gives them uh, a, a very interesting model of peace in the sort of community which we live. I agree entirely with that, but I just, I mean, children continue to be brought up with the presumption of the necessity of war because of the question, what about Hitler? Yeah, yeah. And the, that question, always assumes the necessity of response. Who fought in Hitler's armies? Lutherans and Catholics. Yeah. It's about, um, all I think we're trying to do is to say, how do you bring children? One of the things, the challenges, is the changing of narratives that help children understand that war is not a necessity for Christians. And that will mean that the narratives that um, are taught, I mean, America is a country whose history is taught primarily on our wars. You've got to remember, um, the Revolutionary War is not exactly your language. Um, uh, the, the, the narrative of how you spell that out, I mean, is a congratulatory narrative in America, and if we had to become a nation by beating the British, then we're going to have to beat someone else in the future. So the question becomes, is how are narratives fundamentally rethought in terms of how children are initiated into them? Yeah. Thank you. Well, I could sit here all night, actually, um, uh, mesmerized by really very important themes which uh, touch all of us. But it's just very nearly 8 o'clock, and I promised that we would finish on time. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt um, famously said that it isn't enough to talk about peace, you have to believe in it. It isn't enough to believe in it, you have to work at it. And tonight... Uh, we've had two people that talk about it very well, but more than that, believe in it and whose work uh, is engaged completely with the sole aim of uh, peace. And I want to thank on your behalf um, both Stanley Howers and Brother Sam for giving their wisdom and their personalities tonight and helping us reflect on peace, which I was thinking, uh, Luther King, Martin Luther King, we're just about to celebrate next year the anniversary of him coming to St. Paul's to preach. Mm. And uh, his words very much in the air for me tonight as I listen to you both, that peace isn't merely a distant goal that we're seeking, it's the means by which we arrive at that goal. And for giving us that hope, and it is a hope. We thank you very deeply tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.